Welcome to this Centrum podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org. I'm Michelle Haygood, and this is On Air, a podcast focusing on conversations with artists and creatives from Centrum's residency community. I am broadcasting to you from the lands and waters of the Coast Salish people in a place known as Katai to the Sklalem people and today known as Port Townsend, Washington. This podcast is focused on bringing artists together in community to explore the ways that place, process, and the personal intersect. We dive into the many ways that artists are responding to the current times, affecting change, and finding sustenance during health, climate, and social crisis. Join us and take an hour to be in residence and unpack your own relationships to creativity, time, and place. Thank you for being here and enjoy this episode. It has been a little while since we put out an episode, and that is because I have been working on this series of uh, an amazing amount of material from a project that Cleo Wolfley Erskine and July Hazard, our Northwest Heritage residents in 2020, um, this these are recordings that they have been working on in the past year. And these are a series of interviews with some amazing people, and you're going to get to hear those as we start to release them. I wanted to share with you in this episode a short conversation that I had with Cleo, and then another conversation that we followed up with, with both Cleo and July, where we were able to sit down outside and really start to, in a very relaxed and enjoyable fashion, talk about how these ideas have emerged for them, how they've changed, what their projects look like, and what's been informing them. And I am so grateful to both of these people. I've been working with both of them in various capacities over the past three years, It began when I worked at the Henry Art Gallery, where we worked with them in some programs related to Between Bodies, curated by Nina Bozichnik. And they have radically helped me understand my own relationship to ecology and what is out there that has prevented me from really fully understanding my own relationship to it. So I am just so grateful to all the bodies of work that they have brought to the surface in their teaching and just in our conversations over these past few years. And so I'm so excited to share a piece of that with you. And all of these recordings, including the one in the second part of this episode, are of various qualities. There are children, birds, airplanes, water, rumbling microphones all over them. And I hope that you enjoy that texture and that it helps situate you in the various places that these two amazing people are exploring. 
Cleo Wolfley Erskine is a Seattle-based artist-scholar whose work includes photography, video, street theater, and scientific investigation as participatory performance. Cleo's scientific collaborations with tribes and grassroots groups investigate projects to restore rivers and coastal zones to benefit salmon and recharge groundwater to adapt to changing climates. And his projects have been funded by the Northwest Climate Adaptation Science Center and by the National Science Foundation. Cleo is the author most recently of Fishy Pleasures, Unsettling Fish Hatching and Fish Catching on Pacific Frontiers. And we'll also talk about some of his upcoming books and publications in these episodes. July Hazard is a poet from Kentucky who's currently in Seattle with parts left behind and a long list of cities, rivers, and truck stops on the way. July's current research investigates the altered shorelines of the Black and Duwamish rivers, the assembly of poetic voice under the guidance of animals, and the forest relations of trans and queer youth in rural Appalachia. July teaches in the University of Washington's Comparative History of Ideas Department and Program on the Environment. And together, they collaborate with other artists, scientists, and activists to investigate hidden flows and suppressed ways of being and to evoke new relations among people and the more-than-human world. So I know that you will really enjoy listening to these two provide some examples of what this work looks like and how they also arrived at this work. Enjoy! So I'm here today with Cleo Wolfley Erskine. Um, so hi, Cleo. It's really nice to see you again and have you back on campus. Nice to see you too. And uh, we are here today to talk about a project that we started or you started conceptualizing a while ago. You brought a proposal to Centrum for the Northwest Heritage Residency Programs and um, this was a proposal from, we had two proposals, one from you and one from July Hazard, your partner, who's, who we'll hear from later. And I, um, and then COVID happened. <laughs> we continue to find ways to have you in July come periodically since, uh, when was it? I guess we you started coming last fall? It was almost a year ago, or yeah. a little over a year ago even. Yeah, yeah. it was last October. Um, and, and so your project has changed because there were public components to that that we haven't been able to do. Um, but maybe one day we will mm-hmm. still get to live those out. <laughs> but I am really, really excited about the way it has been able to manifest and make sense through this podcast platform we've been able to establish. Um, because from the beginning, you had built in a component that was um, interviewing folks um, about um, this uh, ideology and inquiry into queer ecologies and um i am just excited to hear you tell us a little bit about that um inquiry that you and july have been working on and how and what 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 we're in for with this series of interviews that we're going to be bringing people yeah well when we 
proposed our separate projects out here at Centrum, they both had aspects of what we think about as queer ecology. And so, you know, we think of that um, as, you know, grounded in science and in conversation with science. I also work as an ecologist um, studying salmon and other stream ecosystems. Um, but also really grounded in the arts and specifically in poetry. And so we've worked um, recently in last over the last few years to create uh, eco-poetics along shorelines class. So we've taught it as a class at University of Washington and we've done uh, public workshops through the Henry Art Gallery and through the Simpson Center for the Humanities and also um, through a uh, program for undergraduates, uh, scholars of color called the Doris Duke Conservation Fellows. So we've, so yeah, so we've designed this series of activities that in- invites people to make and explore relations um, to shorelines um, in the places that they are or in places that have uh, significance to them. So what we do is we go down to a shoreline and then we have um, different approaches. Some of them are kind of querying of science strategies like uh, the transects, the ecological transect, but using that rather than using that to kind of enumerate mussels or plants along a line, we use it to kind of evoke um, edges and memories and, and generate poems from that. Or we have uh, one of the activities that we you know, came up with as a writing prompt for our students was to construct an apparatus to sense buried flows. And our students came up with lots of wonderful devices for different kinds of flows, not only water flows, but um, you know flows of indigenous resistance or flows of history, hidden histories. And then a few years ago, I guess this would have been 2018, July and I decided to take these practices down to the Duwamish River in Seattle and explore some of these hidden areas of this industrialized river um, and try to evoke um, some of its you know, counter narratives and 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 presences. Um, so the Duwamish River we think of as a queer ecology in two, at least two senses. And one is um, that it is a place where queers make relations. There's a lot of cruising that happens in different waterfront parks. Uh, there's a lot of uh, houseless people, many of whom are queer and trans, who live, you know, on the fringes of the former Black River or along the, the banks of the Duwamish River. And those lives and, uh, you know, ideas and observations and, and kind of lived experience of that river don't come into official policy. So now, as you may know, there's a lot of redevelopment on the Duwamish and you know, making green spaces and parks, and those are all very focused on families and these, um, you know, kind of heteronormative spaces that often then, you know, remove the underbrush that allows gay men to cruise for sex. And so we were interested in, on the one hand, yeah, using some of these these eco-poetic strategies to 
notice and and kind of um, bring ourselves into relation with these these other histories, and then also um, thinking about some of the ecological aspects of the Duwamish River as queer in the sense um, that I like to think of in relation to Jose Esteban Munoz's idea of the Brown Commons. So the Duwamish was um, abused by industry for, for many decades. It was straightened. Lots of uh, Boeing and other companies just dumped untold you know, volumes of toxins into it. And, um, and yet uh, there are, are the, all these creatures there that are living on slag heaps or on old bricks that are on the bottom of the river. As part of my ecology practice, I snorkel in that river. Um, people think it's crazy and there is toxicity there, but uh, if you take a shower afterwards, it's usually okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that, that sense of um, what Munoz you know, calls these ecologies are, are brown in the way that they suffer and strive together. And so this idea that um, just as people who live in uh, the neighborhoods around the Duwamish and, you know, Georgetown and South Park and people who come to fish there are finding, you know, connection and, and joy and, and beauty there despite it being unnatural. And so this is something that um, happens to you know, queer and trans people also, right, that we're able to find joy and beauty and connection in um, our bodies and our relations despite them being labeled unnatural by, you know, mainstream society. So so in both these senses, the Duwamish has been this really great um, laboratory for us. And one of our favorite spots is there's a little scrap of restored wetland and a big bridge that opens and closes, and there's a, a beautiful graffiti mural kind of vertical on a cement silo that says laboratory. So we really mm-hmm. do think of it as our mm-hmm. as our lab in a sense. And mm-hmm. um, so as a laboratory for our own work, but also as a space to bring um, some of our students and colleagues to to yeah, explore these methods and ways of seeing the river. So so that's a little bit about queer ecologies and the idea for the podcast actually goes back to 2015, um, when I finished my PhD at UC Berkeley in ecology and social science and and science and technology studies with the feminist bent, I needed a break from all that. And so July and I and a friend, Amy Keller, aka Amy Emergency, uh, started a queer theory reading group and we read Gloria Anzaldúa, we read Jose Munoz, we read a lot of kind of early early queer theory, Eve Sedgwick, and also you know more recent um, more recent pieces. Uh, one of our favorites was uh, Vanessa Agard Jones with the Sands Remember, which is this beautiful theorization of a Caribbean kind of queer ecology through this feeling of sand um, on a beach kind of getting stuck in various bodily crevices as, as kind of connection to the ocean and, and transatlantic slave trade, but also this, you know, queer party scene that, that is very full of life. Um, so coming out of the queer theory reading group, I wanted to think about queer ecology, which at that point was just a handful of texts mostly coming out of 
um, either literary criticism or urban geography, but to think about what ecological science and ecological understandings of relations between species and uh, patterns of emergence might have uh, to do with ecology. And this was before, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy came out. But I think mm-hmm. that's a really great um, text to think seriously mm-hmm. about the science of ecology and emergence as a, a kind of groundwork for political activism. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I wanted to do then and started to do, actually, there is one interview from way back then that I could probably dig out yeah. um, with Annie Danger, but was to think about interviewing queer scientists and queer artists who work in the realm of kind of thinking about ecology, about what would a queer ecology be that, that you know, took science seriously and, and was interested in, in that way of studying ecology. So it's been in the back of my mind and I wanted to do it as a, a podcast um, and just never quite had mm-hmm. the, you know, time or dedicated space. And so when you were talking about a podcast, it made me think about, oh, well, I wonder who I could talk to here in this region that would be um, good to think with about that. And um, we've, uh, at the time that we're recording this, I think we've outlined about four different conversations, mm-hmm. right, that we're going to have. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and basically our approach for the interviews was to ask people what might queer ecology be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, from, yeah, your perspective, whether, yeah, so Justine mm-hmm. Velasco is a landscape architect um, and also formerly an urban farmer and also an artist. And then um, Andy Jones and Melicio Estrella are this power couple of <laughs> dance and, and climate science, um, and they've done really great collaborations together from, you know, bringing together their different expertise. Um, And then Jasmine Harvey is a field ecologist and a wildland firefighter and Mm -hmm. uh, very involved with the Kadik tribe's eco-cultural restoration work. She works for the tribe and um, has other relations with, with, with the tribe. And so thinking about actually the application of science to forest management um, and, you know, what would it mean to have a, a queer trans or just even a women's fire crew? Mm-hmm. Um, how, how would that difference in sociality change mm-hmm. the possibilities of, of burning in a good way? So it's been really exciting to start to have these conversations and, um, I really appreciate the chance to get this project started in a more formal way because I do think that it would be really great to keep going with it and to, yeah, to chart this this space and start to kind of map some of these these relations um, among people who know each other, know of each other, or don't know each other, and and really. Um, it's it's similar to the work that July and I try to do in eco-poetics with a counter canon that is kind of de-emphasizing the, um, you know, the white settler kind of domination in, like, nature poetry and really bringing out some of these other voices. So I'm excited to, to do that um, in this field as well. And just in the last 
few months, I've seen way more formal, um, you know, queer ecology projects. Um, there's a few down in the Bay Area that are really interesting to follow up on. One is a partnership with the National Park Service. And oh. so there's lots of people to talk to. And I, um, yeah, I, I'm excited to to keep doing that. Yeah. Um, well, and I'm excited about the ways, you know, the the grant we were able to bring, you and July both in under was this NEA Northwest Heritage Residency, and the idea for that was really to bring in people who could, you know, help spotlight nuances and important aspects about the place that we live, you know, here on the Olympic Peninsula. And I feel like what this project is doing is, you know, kind of laying out all these uh, ways of thinking and, and approaches that can be used to encounter shorelines and ecosystems that are directly related to the things you're exploring in the Bay Area, in the Duwamish. Um, I don't know if you have further thoughts about the the relationship you see between these projects and here on the peninsula. Yeah. I definitely see the potential. (laughs) Yeah, well, my original vision, which I think that July shared, was that it would be so great to take this space of Fort Warden and all of its, um, you know, ecologies and histories and, you know, the weird bunkers. And, you know, there's a lot of um, very kind of queer aesthetic elements out here. There's lots of big chains and, you know, <laughs> little hidden back rooms. And there's lots of, of um, you know, queer ecological, you know, dynamics kind of latent here but that Mm -hmm. aren't necessarily super visible if you Mm -hmm. come here on a hike and so we had this vision of yeah inviting different queer artists or just queer people out for a weekend in which we would set up different spaces as a way to like evoke and and document some of those queer potentials so whether that was you know, Jill, I had an idea for a, you know, recording booth in one of the dark rooms where people, were, you know, prompts to elicit different, you know, stories or um, or sounds that people might make, and then, um, yeah, I had some some different ideas about the the photo projects that I've been working on out here have been this apparatus of of something with a hole in it and then taking a photograph through that. So whether that's, you know, an old shell from a shell mound on a Duwamish or a piece of a, uh, there's a lot of leaves with holes on them out here, actually, or the <laughs> telescope. Uh, but this this question of, yeah, what is what you can kind of see beneath the surface through different, you know, optical qualities of, of a thing that is from that place. So mm-hmm. it's like kind of making an apparatus and the mm-hmm. the sense of that Karen Brad kind of uses that to bring into being a phenomenon that is relational, right, between whoever's making the image and then what's what's there or whoever's mm-hmm. making the sound and, and then what's there in the world. And so, um, yeah, so it would be great if we got to do that massive installation at some point it seems very <laughs> unlikely given COVID and it's long a- aftermath but um but I feel like 
trying to elicit some of that queer thought and then maybe think in a more long-term way about what it would mean to yeah, deploy that mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. not just through my work or July's work, but as a more collective mm-hmm. practice um, is, is how I see that relating. And a lot of what um, I do in my science and then July and I do in the ecopoetics class is really grounding our investigations in uh, indigenous peoples, you know, specific, tribally specific relations to place and the specific histories. And so um, that's, I think, a crucial part of of anything happening out here um, at Centrum. And, and also in my experience, all, all of that relational work, whether with Native or non-Native communities, um, takes, you know, many, many years of ongoing relation. Yeah. And so yeah. um, it's been... It's been great to be able to be out here so much and and start to um, have the relation to the place, and then I feel like COVID kind of truncated the opportunities right. for the social relations. But but it's made me. It's been great to learn a little bit more about the history, just um, you know, through the different uh, projects that are that are that have been going on, and and so I think it's a really interesting moment for Centrum to also be, yeah, thinking about. Yeah, what would it mean, you know, on the one hand to be in more long-term relation with the Sklalem or other Native folks out here, and then on the other hand to, like, have an ongoing presence of more explicitly queer mm-hmm. art practice, mm-hmm. uh, although I'm sure plenty of the artists who come here are queer, but just for that to be, like, a visible a oh, visible yeah. part would yeah, be I, so I cool. Yeah, I think there's... Um, I, I think this can really help propel that visibility and intentionality to forward. Um, like many things um, here on the fort, there's um, there's not a lot visible <laughs> in terms of who's, who's using the space, who's affected by the space, who has histories on the space and such. So um, that's what is so important to me about this work <laughs> and about uh, bringing it forward and I and I really appreciate um the I was as we know I was telling you earlier uh, the texture also that these interviews bring in terms of they're all recorded um on uh, outside mm-hmm. um insights that have you know some connection to the conversation you know um just because they're taking place there but also because they're you know related to the people who who occupy that space and um uh i think in a time where we don't get to travel much where (laughs) we don't get to see people um in their spaces and experience that full sense um you know these conversations i feel like uh, offer up some of that um and, and are transportive to me. <laughs> yeah, well, it's definitely always great to get someone to show you their favorite shoreline spot yeah. or swimming hole. Or um, it's a, it's it's something I've used in my science work a lot too, of having people show me their springs, and then once you're there, the conversation about water shifts mm-hmm. and becomes mm-hmm. much richer. Because then there's a frog jumping out of the spring, and yeah. all of a sudden you're thinking about it as this kind of multi-species yeah. place. So. Um, it's it's great to to be able to think about the 
the kind of sound qualities of that a little bit more too. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, bringing this uh, here. And um, and everyone, uh, you're going to enjoy listening to this series. And just stay tuned. And speaking of being at your favorite shorelines, uh, this next section will be at Fort Warden State Park and a conversation where July Hazard was able to join us and the three of us sat down and you'll also get to hear from their son, Blue Jay. Here we, here we are um, in, the, in the middle of a little quadrant of old cabins that must have, must have been officers' families' cabins, maybe? Oh, I should At know Fort the answer Warden. to that. Um, I, I believe it was sort of like the middle rate, middle management. Middle management. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they're they're kind of a grayish beige with with a with a nondescript green trim, and and all of it is peeling off in pieces, mm-hmm. and it's and it's lead paint that we just had to pry mm-hmm. out of the grubby hands of our toddler. I guess he's not a toddler anymore. Of our of our child. Uh, the sun is bright and the grass is shining. The ferry is going by in the distance. Yeah, we're, we're at a fort on a on a hill, overlooking strategic waters. Yeah, we're here in uh, the James Jamestown Sklalem land, and I don't remember exactly what this place is called. Katai. Mm-hmm. Um, Katai. Yeah, also so. Port Gamble Sklalem and Lower Elwha Sklalem. Okay, so we're here at an intersection of tribal territories, and Blue Jay is playing a game. And it's a beautiful sunny day in December. So I'm thrilled to be able to talk with y'all in this space um, and to sort of, you know, have a conversation with you all about the projects you've been undertaking, both sort of under the umbrella or or at moments at Centrum, and then, you know, much broader than that. Um, and I was talking to July earlier just about um, this idea of really fluidity in process and how it's something I'm particularly inspired by in in kind of learning about all of the different ways you all have, you know, gone about your inquiries. Um, and so maybe we could sort of start there, you know, and um, and maybe you all could just take turns talking about maybe what those processes have meant to you and, and then in a roundabout way, what your, what, what the, what the central tenets of the work have been. Hmm. And Michelle, Michelle had started Cleo by by saying that a lot of a lot of people she knows are are really attached to certain processes, and we seem not to be. And I said that if I'm attached to anything, I think it's to the to that fluidity, and that if there are if too many parameters arise or if I feel too cornered in a part of a process I can't I can't continue with that I can't you know that, that that's more of a more of a deal breaker for me and I think it's worked really well for us in our in our work to 
together. Um, maybe because so much of that has been around water from the beginning and around um, movement and, you know, not so much now that we're both working at the university, but for quite a long time, really sort of precarious livelihood, precarious um, placement. Uh, and a lot, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of seat of the past decision making in, in day to day life, you know, as well. My, my, my project for this residency has changed so much from the beginning. Uh, and I've felt really appreciative of, of Centrum's flexibility during, during the pandemic and um, <clears throat> as other things change in our lives. I started out writing the, when we were writing the proposals to, to try to come here, I was visiting the shorelines a lot. I was getting sicker and sicker with things that I couldn't identify and that my doctors couldn't identify. And I was questioning my own perceptions of of my health, of my abilities, um, of of my thinking abilities. And I, th I think that I was really concentrating on ideas of, of perception and reception and how those were working in me. And I was trying to think that out along, along shorelines by going to places where the, where the water and the land were, were doing processing and reception and um, with, e with, e with each other and with the different animals there. Uh, we talked about this a little bit with, um, with Andy and Malaysia. Um, I wanted, at the time I was admiring the, the birds and their, their roles in that interplay of observation and predation and vocalization. Um, I, was, I was thinking of them as, as kind of conversational partners about how information processing during terrifying events could could operate. Uh, and so my first project proposal for here was, was called Talking to Birds About Genocide and was about trying to figure out interactive installations to invite other people into that kind of that kind of conversation with the birds. It changed and changed uh, during during the after we after we got the the residency and decided to do it together. Uh, this kept morphing as kind of as my situation with illness was was morphing. Uh, after I was diagnosed with with chronic illness, I kept getting sicker, and I kept coming out here, and I kept exploring the bunkers. And because we have a kid, we were always bringing the kid out with us and trying to take turns caring for him and put him in the little preschool sometimes. Uh, and I would go for walks inside the bunkers with Blue Jay. And so I would record that. I was supposed to be down on the shoreline recording birds, and instead I was walking around the bunker hallways recording our footsteps and recording this kid singing the ABCs. And something about it was resonating with me so much more. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and I realized that there was some way where I, I just felt in my whole life like I was walking down some creepy hallway following mm-hmm. uh, a, like little disembodied voices that I couldn't see you know um, and that it was derelict and um, really messed up you know and in ways that I think kind of kind of like matched my my internal experience of my of my body and so like being in the bunkers and following this kid as he would you know he would run around and I would think oh my god did I lose him like is he gonna go down a hole he's very careful it, it it felt like uh, it felt so eerily like everything else that I was doing that I just wanted to keep keep following that and keep trying to figure it out. So I've been walking with him now under the pier and on the pier and sneaking down the little stairway there to to get to the echoey part underneath, going in the bunkers, going around the bunkers and up and down the hills along the beach. Um, at night and in the daytime and just kind of having conversations and seeing seeing how we make choices about which way to turn mm-hmm. um, how loud to talk how to relate to the echoes maybe maybe he was sort of able to replace the birds in the project by being named Blue Jay I don't know oh, wow. <laughs> but there still are birds in the project as well I guess that's a, that's that's about all the rational parts I know about how it's evolved. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. that's incredible. I mean, I feel like in there, it, to me, that really speaks to you know a way that intuitive practices, as well as um, I mean, I think you were you meant, I think you were following Blue Jay, but it also sounds like you're following the cues of the of the space mm-hmm. and of all the elements. The space is so strange here too at the fort right mm-hmm. I mean it's so it's so at the same time like rock solid and entrenched of of an of occupational structures mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. also the derelict like I said before a little bit ramshackle sometimes mm-hmm. falling apart uh, sometimes like unidentifiable and in function unless maybe mm-hmm. you're some kind of military specialist there's something very haunted and occupied and messed up feeling about it that also I think was really matching this this process of trying to untangle environmental exposures or mm-hmm. whatever that mm-hmm. I might have had that that might have to do with what was going on and I, I don't I don't know something yeah. about it just really matched to come yeah, up and try to figure out how to come to terms with the occupational space of the fort. Yeah. Yeah. Also, right before, right around the time that we were applying for the residency, um, we had just finished teaching this Ecopoetics Long Shorelines class, and one of mm-hmm. the texts that we had taught for the first time was Josh Reed's The Sea is My Country, mm-hmm. uh, which, so th- all of the different, the significance of this area um, as kind of a you know, intertribal center of trade and, you know, politics, but then also, you know, within in the settlement area as this pl- space of exchange between all of these different, you know, maritime native and non-native communities, um, you know, across the 
border that was imposed between the U.S. and Canada, I think, was very present um, in our minds from that text and from a field course that we did out a little further out the peninsula. Um, and so then coming out here, for me coming out here after that, uh, a few months after that, you know, it's interesting to just read the interpretive signs that are so focused yes. on the bunkers and these kind of details yeah. of the construction yeah. of the bunkers. And there's not so much of this context of, uh, you know, it reminds me in some ways of other bunkers that I've spent a lot of time in, in, uh, you know, all the forts around the Golden Gate, around the San Francisco Bay. And, you know, similarly, like people put a lot of energy into them and people lived out there for a long time and there was never they were never really used militarily um and yet they're clearly a part of this right imaginary of conquest and defense and 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 this kind of direct link from you know the era of conquest when the forts were primarily about kind of establishing settler control of space uh, and so to think about them as you know simultaneously this part of conquest that you know july and i like to think about as you know ongoing but never quite complete but also this kind of failed mm. it was obviously not a failed conquest like there's a lot of you know settler <laughs> um, infrastructure and just property um, dominion you know legal um, authority that that is here but i think um thinking about yeah, this project that was supposed to accomplish something that it never quite did is is another way to see uh, some of these kind of gaps or undersides of, of settlement that have been really important to our thinking together in different um, writing projects and, and, and performance projects over the years. You know, the project that I had proposed out here was building on some photography work that I had done kind of alongside July as we were applying some of these uh, ecopoetics practices from our course to our own work. And so we had been mostly focused on the Duwamish River and the Black River, um, but thinking about this region as really shaped by water and, you know, transit across water. And so, um, you know, when I was thinking about what would be interesting to do here, I was interested in all of these different toxic waste sites that are kind of around here and affiliated with the military in mm -hmm. some way. And some of them, you know, I because of COVID, I had kind of planned to make these connections to different, uh, you know, tribal governments and community groups and, and delve into that specificity around this area a little bit more in the way that I'm, I am currently doing on the Duwamish. Uh, but even without having the chance to formally do that um, because of COVID, just riding on the bus a couple of times when I came out here with my bike and then rode the bus back to Seattle and just hearing, you know, conversations on the bus, people who work on the nuclear submarines and just the becoming more aware of the way in which, you know, military, U.S. military projects are, are very much still within the economy. Um, of this place that I'm sure that people who live out here are very aware of, but as someone who is a recent transplant to this region, um, you know, I knew that there were bases at Bremerton, and, but didn't quite understand how much, you know, the U.S. nuclear arsenal is very much stationed right here, <laughs> and that a lot of people's livelihoods are 
are tied up in that. And so, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting in my work to think about local places that have their own, you know, histories and cultural histories and kind of ecological communities that are, you know, somewhat endemic, but also influenced by species flow from other places. But then also, you know, the land use and and the cultural use is really shaped by these kind of global mm-hmm. forces like you know the cold war um that that then just linger in mm-hmm. similar ways that the physical mm-hmm. infrastructures linger mm-hmm. hey hi <laughs> you coming out to go for a little walk yeah okay well and um and then what you're describing also you know has such a strong um, it's such a strong example of heteronormative and patriarchal, you know, structures that, that have brought us to this moment. And so um, I'd love to just hear y'all talk a little bit more about how, you know, your, your inquiry into queer ecologies and, and queering are the way we encounter spaces and think about scientific practice. Um, we just had a lot of questions about it. We had a question. We started by having questions about queer theory in general, and uh, I mean, I think it's important for for both of us. For me, it certainly is that it stays it stays question oriented, mm-hmm. um, and maybe that itself is is a queer ish approach of some type. I don't know. Yeah, I think that for me there was this formal project that came into my mind as, you know, a question, I guess. Um, Kind of right after I finished my dissertation work back in 2015 and that work was very much ecological and and explicitly feminist, um, but it wasn't explicitly queer and I didn't even know. And I guess this is like another kind of question, like what would it mean to do ecology science and modeling and field work that was queer? And then there was also this idea that, well, it must be queer because I, and it must be trans because I am, you know, coming to it with a queer and trans subjectivity. So what else could it be but queer ecology? But then, and and also I think the way in which some of those dimensions, both of, um, you know, lived experience, embodied experience, but also of trying to bring in these excesses that are often um, placed outside of science. So indigenous histories or um, emotions uh, or, you know, affects or, um, you know, even, you know, strange ideas like, you know, the idea that, you know, plants might communicate with one another through fungi. These are all these kind of excesses that are queer in a way until sometimes they get brought in. And so, um, yeah, we had started this reading group with two reading groups and one was a bunch of queers and artists and the other one was a bunch of ecologists and, um, and they were kind of going simultaneously. And I think we were the only crossover people between the two of them. <laughs> but it was kind of, yeah, my, so it was kind of, for me, it was kind of personally wanting to just get back into reading in new fields after this big push on the dissertation. Um, 
but coming out of that fact of doing those two reading groups in parallel, I um, first became aware that there was this very kind of narrow Creekologies literature that was, some of it was like a little bit the geography of cruising places in urban areas, but most of it was around literary criticism or, um, you know, prof- kind of, yeah, eco-criticism in some way. And so I really felt that science should, the science of ecology should have a place in that project. And so um, I proposed as my postdoc project to do interviews with, you know, queer people who were ecologists and then, uh, queer people who were artists or you know activists, but were engaging ecology, perhaps more as a metaphor, um, or just to mean the environment and not to mean the science, and then to s- just ask that question, right? What could queer ecology be? And so um, that project has been in the back of my mind. I didn't do it for my postdoc because life intervened <laughs> in different ways, but um, so it was, you know auspicious some of those questions came into uh, my book project underflows which I have also been working on um, during this residency time Um, and some of the practices that I've used especially in the last chapter of that book um, are these shoreline poetics practices that that July and I have both deployed in different ways so um, it was really exciting to have the chance at Centrum to develop that photographic practice more than I probably would have um, through this apparatus of kind of finding some object and a place and then and then photographing through it and exploring kind of the optical and um, folk, you know focus properties of, of taking pictures through holes and so that's been uh, you know, a nice practice to do out here. And I've also done it at some other shoreline places and um, it's still kind of in progress, but it's been, it's been um, definitely really shaped by some of the infrastructure here, particularly like the telescopes that look out over the the water and the lighthouse. And, um, and, but then the podcast series has been, this great opportunity to turn back to this project that I've wanted to do for mm-hmm. a long time and that now I'm excited to kind of take up in yeah. a more focused way like now that I have the book is done and I have a little bit more space yeah. so it's been really auspicious in that way that's exciting I can't wait to read it <laughs> I can't oh, wait to read <laughs> a lot of the literature that you all have um brought forward you know in your descriptions of this project um it's it's exciting and I know that that's I know that that's also a part of your teaching practice and otherwise is to be kind of developing these counter canyons as you called Mm -hmm. them and um yeah yeah thank you for that I don't know if there's more you'd want to say about this but I the other thing I'm just struck by in your practices and I think this just ties in with everything you've described already so maybe it's just a comment, but you know the the collaborative nature and the sort of non I feel like it's a non hierarchical way of researching and interacting with students and um, and the you know and species and bodies of land. But 
I guess just collaboration in general just seems to be a really central part of what y'all do. Yeah, I don't know if you'd agree with that or in your processes. I mean, maybe this is a question. In your processes, do you find that, um, how does that back and forth of sort of like solitary work and then collaborative mm. work happen for you? You know, I, I think partly it's one of those things that that is just... Uh, that is just like observationally true, but then somehow becomes weirdly political. I think that mm. I think that everything that that we do is collaborative, and people just lie about that, mm. sort of, or don't uh-huh. or don't or don't see it necessarily. Um, you know, you can, I mean, you can see it in the academic world a lot now with with the with the new discourses around citations and uh, how you how you recognize the voices of people who have contributed to discussions on the things you're talking about in different ways, how you choose who to cite and when and why and what parts, um, and who you might not need to. And it's it's collaborative. All work is collaborative because thought is collaborative and perception is collaborative you know in the in the sense that those things are not created or authored by a single entity right they're 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 co-generated by by phenomena and by circumstance um, and by accident so much more interesting to to try to figure out how to articulate those 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 contributions than it is to um, to pretend that you did something or thought of something by yourself that that said though it it, it does for me at least it does take a lot of solitary work Do, doing that and and learning how to to recognize and untangle the contributions of elements or phenomena or uh, the wind or or my research partner or my student you know it, it takes it takes solitary work to do it yeah yeah I think some of the some kind of apparatus at the site or design strategies or to sense berry um, flows or methods that um, we some of these have developed together are measurement coming from strategies this like a transect that are you know understanding of the design to as show how all the plants that are here in this or, or you, you might know, just say overgrown lawn have yeah human you know come human into this emergent feature that is the ecosystem together with the lead from the paint and the deer and their poop and everything else and so taking those you know science has developed different measurement and statistical and observational techniques for showing that relation that we call ecology and that can be applied not only to you know organisms and earth forces but also to social relations um, or, um, you know, text or, or these other things that are more in the realm of, of the humanities and art. And so a lot of our, most of our collaboration in the last, I don't know, 
five years or so has been less about like making or writing things together and more about trying to develop these situations for other people to investigate those relations um, both in these classes and workshops but also um, in some of the field-based work that we're starting to do down on the Klamath River. Some of it's for other people, but some of it is is for us too, I think, like um, figuring out the, the ocular apparatus together at the at the Duwamish that you've gone on to use in a lot of your photography, um, figuring out the the sort of almost parodies or deconstruction of the of the field science methods that that can turn them to poetic ends. Uh, we we do those things to ourselves for for real. We don't just make them up for other people to do. So how would you how would you talk about that? Well, part? I think that it's more been going into what what look like individual products, but that we've thought like you like write a poem or I'll make a photo, but then we have thought about and not quite yet figured out how to show that the relation between those like products or those artworks you might say and so one of the things that was cool about being out here together was uh, scheming this installation that could happen you know here in the bunkers and down in the mm -hmm. science museum and that would and we didn't get to fully executing it but it was going to have elements of a scavenger hunt mm -hmm. and i guess going back to queer ecologies you know mm -hmm. trying to as soon as i came here i saw queer potential in mm -hmm. some of the bunkers as like sm you know dungeon spaces mm -hmm. and you know, photo booths and fashion show, like some of these queer events that have been, you know, part of the, the broader scene that I've been a part of say, wow, people could really do something yeah. here, but they probably wouldn't ever know to come out here or think to come out here. And so, um, you know, I'd been excited about, Hey, let's, you know, use some of the, um, residency funds as stipends to bring a bunch of people out here and do something wild you know that would kind of queer the space especially like on a summer weekend where there's all these families and i mean maybe you wouldn't have a full-on sex party but like <laughs> something performative and mm -hmm. and and flamboyant and you know excessive um you know in these in these spaces that are otherwise quite yeah heteronormative mm -hmm. as you were saying um and so then yeah we had one of the things that I was most excited about was, uh, and maybe we'll get to do it someday, who knows, <laughs> but was um, down in the, the Science Center, which is, you know, such this great, um, I mean, it's obviously still alive and functioning and well, but like in, in its design, it's this great like artifact of mm -hmm. what I see as kind of, you know, feminist community science practice mm -hmm. of, um, when was it was it 70s or 80s just all the fiberglass rocks and everything it was very evocative of yeah. a certain era and I can you know just from talking to people about the the origins of that space I could imagine um you know I don't know if it's all women but it seems like it's definitely like women-led mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know education focused relational to the shoreline focused on you know kids and conservation and all of that and then um 
it was super exciting how open they were to us repurposing that space with, you know, monitors showing some of um, this photography and video through holes and then some of the audio that July had been collecting. And then we had ideas to have kind of a, you know, scavenger hunt, mm-hmm. you know, a place where you would start your scavenger hunt down there under the pier. And, and so part of it would be us presenting these um, works that we had made using these approaches that we developed collabor- collaboratively, but a lot of it would also be, you know, prompting and, and you know, um, facilitating other people having these these different relations with this place and then collecting that in some way. Yeah. I would love to see that. Um, grow and continue I I think it's very possible I think you know I feel like we've learned to operate or at least I have learned to operate at a different pace as a result of COVID and 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 in embracing that you know Um, it's been that's been a silver lining for me is to see the value of what it does mean to kind of spread out activities and slow them down um, so that things can happen when they really need to happen and I know that's I know that's how y'all approach much of your work. I feel like that's a really good lead-in to. Um, I wanted to also just ask what, and yeah, I, you've kind of already alluded to it in your description of that project, and in talking about what you might focus on now that Underflows is behind you. But just what you are excited about working on in the future. If there's anything you haven't brought up, um, I think it'd be lovely to hear you know if that's clear yet well there's the sort of now and future project that we have going on that we call the the research poetics field school and that's something that's developed more during the same residency time too so Mm -hmm. maybe maybe that's something to talk about yeah i'm interested to hear that a little bit where would we start I mean, I think we could talk about the Klamath River, uh, which is a beautiful river and flows from, you know, from Oregon, high desert, come down through a canyon in Northern California and out um, into the Pacific uh, Ocean. And it's, you know, Salmon River. It's very much kind of a native, uh, has a very strong native presence to this day. And so we have a kind of ongoing collaboration with the Kadik tribe that um, working with youth there um and also elders and cultural practitioners and around um mapping and and integrating kind of mapping and storytelling and scientific data and so um that is a collaboration with lisa hillman and leaf hillman and um that was also a little bit delayed by covid but um yeah we're really excited to have uh, some ideas around it's focused around a place called Tishanik which is a ceremonial center and one of the three kind of you know cultural it's almost like an urban center of of Karuk life there on the river and and it was devastated by gold mining um, between the 1870s and 1940s and then has kind of sat, sat there in this state of you know ongoing toxicity and damage since then and so the larger project is to um, use yeah science and mapping and ecopoetics to um, generate a 
the Cariuk-centered vision for restoring that river and then to kind of move, you know, eventually move through design into the actual mm -hmm. restoration. And so, I mean, that could easily be, you know, 10 or 15 year project. And um, at some point we would kind of turn it over to the engineers, but, but this idea of um, that, that these poetics methods and these art, art, art methods and, you know, field drawing and field writing and, um, and performance are, can kind of enrich the normal settler process that is so focused on only only Western science methods. And so um, I don't know if you want to talk about some of the specific ideas that we had around the poetics mm -hmm. part of that. Well, I think that what's <clears throat> what's at the, the heart of the overlap between us here is is the idea of field practice and um, in particular that that field practices are invitations to get something else to come into the work as a as a collaborator as a co-generator um, co-generator uh, and ways that that will show up in in at this at this field site uh, at this yeah mm -hmm. much more than field site but in the field at this mm -hmm. site it is uh <clears throat> with for example interviews the young people interviewing older people and eliciting stories but doing it in the field doing it at sites sometimes at sites that have to do with those stories, sometimes at sites that have to do with other significant events in one or the other of their lives, uh, and seeing how how does not just the river but this bend in the river participate mm -hmm. in the story? Mm -hmm. uh, how does this um, type of type of willow participate in the conversation if you have the conversation right beside it? And we're yeah we're we're so excited about that and yeah. we're excited that that our partners are excited about yeah. about exploring that too. Yeah, I I've, I noticed how often you know field practice came up in your conversations with folks and just sort of people just kind of emphasizing the value and importance of just like being outside, working outside, being in dialogue with it. Um, and I think that, I hope that for many people that is something that COVID has helped direct and, and reset our values for it. Um, have, you, have you witnessed any, any of those shifts or any other shifts as a result? Well, the project that I was really excited about, hi, hi right at the <laughs> beginning of COVID was to, to do these um, prompts that were called queer quarantine ecologies mm -hmm. and so it was um so i think it, it was my way of trying to um yeah take this practice that is very central to my work and offer it to people who were freaking out because they couldn't leave their apartment and so um some of it some of the prompts were 
you know, directly taken from these kind of environmental justice, like mapping tools, like draw a map of where you are. What are the things that you smell? Which, what toxic sources do you think they come from? Right. And these are things that, you know, part of the, what makes them environmental justice practice is like re articulating the environment as urban mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. even inside Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. or that relation between the built environment and the, you know, the rest of the world. And so, uh, but other of them were just, yeah, like look outside, what do you see, draw a bird, um, any kind of basic natural history practices, but, but kind of articulating them as, you know, queer ways of, of, of making and seeing queer ecologies. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was really, you know, I was thinking of my friends in New York who are just trapped in their apartments Mm -hmm. and freaking out as Mm -hmm. they were listening to sirens all night long and Mm -hmm. didn't, maybe they had like a street tree or a pigeon or something. And I was in Seattle, right? Or houseplant. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, Or just, you know, the mold on your bread or whatever it is, you know. Um, But then it was also really, that was kind of the, well, I guess the second kind of foray into publicly trying to ask this question in a more public way of, you know, what are queer ecologies? And the first was this field tour that July and I had done um, right at the end of February on the Duwamish River um, through the uh, through the Simpson Center for the Humanities. Um, so, yeah, I think, and I think that hearing people respond to that and also just, uh, you know, my day job as a professor putting out a little bit more, I do queer ecology, I do trans ecology as a scientist and having more and more students come and say, I had no idea you could do that, Mm -hmm. um, has made me feel like this is like a, you know, a rich and interesting way to explore, but I'm, I'm much more interested in doing it in this very kind of horizontal, um, non-hierarchical way of, you know, rather than interviewing people and kind of extracting data for a paper, like trying to do it as a podcast or as a, you know, anthology or as an event Mm -hmm. um, or things, you know, more kind of public scholarship approaches. So I hope that um, I'll be able to, you know, get that funded and get credit for that in the tenure process and, and all that. But did you have anything else to say? You know, it's, it's it's something that I, I I I keep struggling to figure out how to put together, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, my sister just had a baby that I couldn't go help with because of COVID. Uh, my mom is helping my sister and exposing her high risk body to COVID in order to do so in a way that I'm not. You know, not that secure about. Um, my aunt lives in a nursing home and has COVID. My cousin died of uh, COVID about a week ago, and so so many people are are in, in such terrible, disastrous 
circumstances with it right now i think i think it's 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 clear that it's absolutely urgent for people's suffering to be addressed and and abated and it's it's clear that that the official relations that exist aren't going to be able to to step up to that uh, to that urgent set of needs I hope that that if ecology has is like some way of talking about relation and if queerness is some way of talking about opposition to destruction of life and some way of talking about uh, change and subversion of of these harmful systems then then I, I would hope that <laughs> that, that any th- thought that we do toward queer ecology is somehow tied to remaking yeah. this horrible situation. And I think I think that a lot of the people we've spoken to in the interviews have that same feeling. We we don't know where it will go, but something about this kind of work and rethinking is 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 feeling absolutely required. I don't know, and and. Yeah, sort of desperately hopeful. And here's a monkey. Yeah. Thank you, July. I feel like that. uh, I think that was a a really nice way to kind of wrap up and you know draw attention to the the urgency and um, yeah, the urgency of of this work. Um, And thank you, thank you both for doing it and for sharing it and the is the is the quarantine project you mentioned Cleo is still up where people mm-hmm. can see it and access it and yeah I can you can link I'll send you yeah. the link and you can link to it and then yeah. I know y'all also share um work from your eco-poetics yeah that cl- that site exists see. um it's a little it's bare bones. yeah we kind of took down all of the elaborate documentation from the first okay. iteration but it never quite got remade into the second iteration so now there's not much there but there's still a bit yeah so. and then your book the book will out. be coming out probably spring 22 okay. on university of washington press wonderful it's called underflows transfiguring rivers querying ecologies Great. Well, y'all have given us a lot to work with, and um, I look forward to continuing. Thanks so much. It's been yeah. great to think about these things in a different different way. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Thanks for the conversation and for having us here. Yeah. Uh, our pleasure. Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The creator and host of On Air is Michelle Hagwood, Program Manager for Artist Residencies. Our cover artwork is by Leon Finley, and our music is by Tabor Dark. Centrum's executive director is Robert Berman. Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our executive producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples, from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. 
Other Centrum podcasts include music from the Centrum archives, interviews with teaching artists, and readings from the Port Townsend Writers Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright 2020 Centrum Foundation. Thank you.